You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 18 is where we are in our study of God's Word tonight. Matthew chapter 18, we read beginning with verse 15 down to the 20th verse. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. Our Lord says to us, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, would you bless now this next few moments that we have together in your word. Would you be our teacher? Would you be at work both in me as I preach and would you be at work in all of us as we listen in a way that our lives will be changed because of what we hear? We're so grateful the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, a resident truth teacher. And may Almighty God be at work in our hearts as we listen tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. How do we live for the glory of God as the children of God on this side of eternity? That's what this chapter has to do with. The verses that we've come to make clear that we cannot live in a way that pleases our God if we are not open to the process of correction that He has ordained for His children. That's what verses 15 through 20 speak to, a process that God Himself has ordained for the health and the well-being and the safety and the preservation of His children. Mutual correction in the Lord's church. As it is in any healthy family, so it is in the family of God. We are meant to genuinely care for each other. We do not smother each other. We don't exasperate each other. But we do genuinely care for each other, which means we are involved with each other. This is necessary. And just as a part of that in a healthy family includes correction, so it is in a healthy church. And we're looking at a passage that teaches us how to do that, how to help each other in the matter of sin, how to rescue fellow sheep when it comes to the matter of sin on this side of our glorification. 
This morning we began looking at nine elements necessary for the correction of God's children. You could say nine principles for the correction of God's children. As I announced this morning, we're just looking at these verses from a high-level perspective. Next week we'll come back and descend down into them and walk through this verse by verse. But for tonight, it's just observation. And we're observing nine principles in these verses for how we're to love each other when it comes to the matter of sin. This morning we looked at four. Let me just briefly remind you. First of all, the discipline of sin is a family matter. Twice in verse 15, he envisions us dealing with a sin issue that involves a brother. Verses 19 and 20, we are gathered together in the name of Christ. Verse 17, if someone doesn't receive correction, all the way through the process of finally it being announced to the church, if they won't even hear the church, then we are to conclude that they are lost and in need of salvation. They become an evangelism project. Verse 21, when we get beyond these verses, as our Lord goes on to teach about the matter of forgiveness, Peter's question has to do with how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him. So this this is a family matter. The discipline of sin is a family. Second, the discipline of sin is an orderly matter. The Lord gives us a process that we must pay attention to. We don't have a right to disregard. It begins with one-on-one confrontation, then two or more, in keeping with the standard found in the Old Testament Scriptures, that every matter is to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If someone won't listen to the two or three witnesses, then you tell it to the church. If they won't listen to the church, then they are put outside the fellowship of God's people and, as I mentioned a moment ago, regarded as someone who needs salvation. So it's an orderly matter. The discipline of sin is a wisdom matter. We noted this morning how divine wisdom is on display in that it is simple instruction, yet it is in another way, rigid instruction. It's rigid enough to protect us against sinning against people in the name of rescuing them from their sin. It is simple enough that it allows for the freedom to apply judgment, discretion, wisdom as we confront each individual matter of sin. The Word of God doesn't change, but but bringing the Word of God to bear upon these individual issues is a matter for wisdom. Which sins do you confront? At what point of the sinning do you confront it? How do you go about finding the two or three witnesses if they are required? How long do you take between each of the steps? I mean, none of that is specified in the verses. And so this is a matter where we need the Spirit of God and we need the wisdom of God. It's a family matter. It's an orderly matter. It's a wisdom matter. It is a redemptive matter. What is at the heart of this instruction is love. What is at the heart of this instruction is rescue. And this is why there's a progression that we're given. It begins one-on-one. And if you win your brother at that level, that's as far as it goes. Because what motivates it is not the desire to embarrass someone. What motivates it is not the desire to get even, some sort of retribution. Certainly what does not motivate it is a desire for their destruction. What motivates it is love for them, the glory of God, the good of the Lord's church, The motivations are redemptive in nature, and therefore the process aims at redemption at every step. If you weren't here this morning, get it, listen to it. There's a lot more detail. But tonight where we begin is with a fifth observation, a fifth element necessary to obeying these verses. 
The discipline of sin is a necessary matter. It is a necessary matter. What I mean by that is this, the conditions that our Lord envisions here. A brother or sister in sin. These are conditions that constantly occur in the community of God's people. Our family is not a sinless family. We're a forgiven family. We're a transformed family. We're a secure family. We're on our way to an everlasting life in the presence of our Savior. But on this side of our glorification, it is not a sinless family. We sin. We sin against each other. God's people are capable of sinning in ways that not only threaten our own well-being, but threaten the well-being of the Lord's church. And so God's people need warning. Sometimes we need intervention. We need correction. We need help. We need forgiveness. We need to grant forgiveness. It's interesting. We often think about sins that are worthy of discipline in the category of of you and I committing sin that needs to be forgiven. And that happens, of course. But sometimes the problem is not that someone hasn't repented. It's are we willing to forgive the person who repented? And so we can struggle not only on the side of needing forgiveness, but on the side of needing to grant forgiveness. And so what our Lord is addressing is not something that that might never occur. It's not even something that rarely occurs It's something that regularly occurs. This is a part of life in the Lord's church. This is something that regularly occurs among the people of God. And so what this means is that what's envisioned in these verses, what we're called to practice, is not something that is overly formal. It's a family matter, as I've already mentioned. It's not mechanical. It's a family process. And it takes on a a formality in that we're to follow the steps, but we never follow the steps in an impersonal way. Just a name and a face to be reproved for sin. No, we are called to know each other. This is love from shepherds to sheep when the elders are involved. This is love from sheep toward fellow sheep when it hasn't reached the level of elder involvement. This is love between members of the same family. This is life in the family of God. It is necessary in that we cannot opt out of it and then imagine that we're going to be faithful to our God or faithful to the family of God. We can't opt out of it on the side of being corrected and we can't opt out of it on the side of loving people enough to correct them. The discipline of sin is necessary in the life of the Lord's church. So it's a necessary matter. Next, the discipline of sin is a personal matter. I've already implied this. I've sort of cast a look in that direction, but let me underscore it. What he's describing is relational in nature. This is why it begins one-on-one. Because we are to know each other. We're to care about each other in a a personal way, in a sincere way. 
I think it's obvious, even on the pages of the New Testament, this does not mean that we're all going to know each and every member of the church in exactly the same way. I mean, when you think about the day of Pentecost and you have thousands of people converted in a day, there's no way that they all knew each other at exactly the same level. And so it is even in our own church as the church grows. I mean, you know what it is to have someone be a member here for some time and you haven't yet even spent time with them alone. You're meeting them. You're getting to know them. So it's not right to think we're all going to know each other in exactly the same way to exactly the same degree. But what this teaching does indicate is that no church member is meant to live an isolated experience. That is, everyone is to know others and everyone is to be known by others. To the point that if there is a sin issue, someone recognizes it. Someone is able to recognize you're not doing well. Someone is able to come to you one-on-one. You see, this can't even be practiced if we don't know each other. This is what it means for the church to love itself. That is, for there to be mutual love on display that edifies the body. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I know that's a lengthy passage and there's a lot involved there, but I hope you got at least this much that every one of us is to be supplying something. And the result of an every member ministry is that as the church ministers to itself through the giftedness that God has distributed, there's an edification that takes place, and that edification takes place in love. We're to love each other, which means we know each other, which means we're known by each other. This is a personal matter. This is a relational matter we're talking about. Let me say it to you this way. It is not God's will that you isolate yourself. Now, having served as a pastor for a very long time, I can tell you there's a consistent pattern that you recognize in people's lives when they're sliding spiritually, when they're not heading in the right direction. And one of the consistent, unmistakable marks that someone is not doing well is they begin to isolate themselves. And that isolation often involves even more than just the church. They begin to isolate themselves from people who know them well, who might address their sin issue. Say it another way, they begin to run. Run from the light, run from the truth, run from the people who represent the light and the truth. And only do they run from them, they often demonize them. They begin to find fault 
that justifies their isolation. It's not real. The only thing that has really changed is them. But they have to, to, you see, demonize to distance themselves. And so they do. The Bible tells us how foolish this is. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. It's foolish to isolate yourself. And if I could just expand the principle for just a moment, this is not just true when it comes to sin issues. This is also true when it comes to other areas where you might be struggling. You go through problems. And instead of allowing the church to love you, instead of allowing the church to enter into your burdens and help carry those burdens, you want to conduct yourself in a way that is, you know, quote unquote, self-sufficient. It's true, each of us must bear our own burdens, but it's also true the Lord has designed that we help each other carry burdens. And so whatever your issue is, if it's a health issue or a financial issue, a discouragement issue. It doesn't matter what the issue is. I want to ask you, are you isolating yourself? Have you cut yourself off from the means of help that God has ordained, which includes His people? It's very unwise. We all need someone to love us enough to help us with our sin issues. We all need people who love us enough to help us carry our burdens That isolation is not just foolish, it's selfish. Because as soon as you cut your as soon as you isolate yourself, you only you not only cut yourself off from others helping you, but you have cut yourself off from you helping others. Now you have you have left your brothers and sisters to themselves. You're no longer in a position to, to invest in their lives. This is a necessary matter. This is a personal matter, a relational matter that we're learning about in these verses. Next, the discipline of sin is a community matter. This is the seventh element, the seventh principle. The discipline of sin is a community matter. Sin sin doesn't just threaten the individual. This is how we think sometimes. Well, it's my life. These are my decisions. No one has a right to speak into this. No one has a right to confront me about my own choices. I'm a grown person. Well, that may be how the world thinks, but that's certainly not the standard given to us in these verses for the Lord's church. We're all members one of another. Sin doesn't just threaten you. Sin threatens the entire community. If we ignore your sin. This is true, as you know, down to the level of your own life. I mean, if a husband thinks his sin doesn't affect his family, he's foolish. If a wife thinks her sin doesn't affect her family, she's foolish. There's no such thing as a sinful life that isn't threatening other people. This is why we begin one-on-one. But if a person will not receive correction, what do you do? You involve others two or three, and if they won't hear them, you involve the entire church. How is that right? To involve the entire church in an individual's sin issue. It's right because you belong to a community. 
To join a church is to belong to the people of God represented in this location. You belong to the family of God as it is found at Founders Baptist Church. And if you don't think your sin threatens the entire community, then don't forget the final step, which is if they won't listen to the church, what do you do? You remove them from the community. It's a good reminder that church discipline is not just about the purity of the individual life. It's about the purity of the congregational life where the church excuses sin and coddles those who are living in sin. It's like a disease. It infects others. It spreads. John MacArthur's talked about this for years, and he's right. When the church preaches against sin but then doesn't practice church discipline, there's an obvious disconnect when it comes to the authority of Scripture. I mean, do we really believe it? Will we really submit to it? Are we just talking? Or are these the words of God? Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. In the first verse it says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. One of the things that happens when you put someone outside the fellowship of the Lord's church is you have put them, according to these verses using this terminology, you've put them into the realm of Satan. This is the realm of God's family. Outside is the realm of Satan. So when they're removed from the Lord's church, they are delivered over to Satan. But even that step, you see, is redemptive in nature because Paul says what we're wanting is this. Even if the person experiences temporal destruction as a result of this process, may their soul be saved in the last day. May it result in their salvation or may it result in their repentance, which then will manifest that they were really saved. He goes on to say this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that sin spreads? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth find it interesting, don't you, that when you read those verses, the ones whom Paul would consider to be arrogant are just the opposite of what our culture would consider to be arrogance. He says the arrogant are not those who would exercise church discipline. He says the arrogant are those who have not exercised church discipline. In fact, they may be glorying in what they were calling love or maybe even patience. As we said, this process requires us to learn graciousness and patience and gentleness. All those things are true. But when a person has gone through this you know, 
process of confrontation and they are unrepentant and immovable in their sin, now the church is faced with what are we to do? And if you don't put them out of the fellowship at that point, it's arrogance. You have taken matters into your own hands, exercising your own wisdom instead of submitting yourself to the wisdom of God found in His Word. It's not arrogance to lovingly confront sin. It is arrogance to ignore it. The discipline of sin is a community matter. Listen, dear one. Don't join a church if you don't want someone to love you like these verses describe. Because as soon as you take your place among the people of God, now you are held to the standard given to the family of God. And in fact, you ought to rejoice in that. It means someone's watching for you. It means others care about you. It means if you begin to wander away, someone's going to notice. It means if you're not doing well, someone's going to care enough to talk to you about it. That's something not to resent. That's something to rejoice in. Amen? Next thing we see, the discipline of sin is a salvation matter. It is a salvation matter. Look at verse 17. What's clear is if someone can go through all these steps, exercised properly, exercised with truth and love and wisdom, with graciousness and humility and patience, if someone can go through all of that and not repent, then we must assume they don't know Christ. That's what our Lord means when He says we're to regard them as the Gentile and the tax collector. Let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. That is outside the church, outside the congregation, outside the fellowship of God's people, in need of salvation. We read it this morning. Let me just remind you, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul goes on to write this. We read verses 1 through 8. Now listen to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Let me just pause for a moment and say this. You know, one of the sad things you witness sometimes is a person disciplined out of the fellowship of the Lord's church and then members of the church go on fellowshipping with them as though nothing has happened. When the church collectively speaks to a sin issue following the leadership of the elders and this person is put out of the congregation, our relationship to them changes. It doesn't mean we can't be around them. It means that when we're around them, what our focus is on is their salvation. You're not just sitting down to have fellowship with them. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. It is to see their soul rescued in light of the day that's coming. That's, that's our focus. Not even to eat with such a one, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge, and then he says, purge the evil person from among you. The evil person. 
like a Gentile, like a tax collector. How could you draw such a conclusion? They once met with us. They worshiped with us. They sat under the teaching of God's Word. They sang the songs. And then there's a sin issue that comes up, and someone follows this process in truth, in love, with graciousness and patience and humility. But they harden their heart. And they walk through the entire process and they will not yield. Our Lord, our shepherd, our king is telling us that in that case, we are right to assume they probably do not know him. Because if you have the Holy Spirit and you have a new nature, you yield to the authority of your shepherd and eventually you deal with sin. In fact, if I could broaden this principle out for just a moment... One of the clearest evidences of regeneration is now you have an awareness of sin. And sometimes I think people think this way. What that means is, now I'm really bothered by sin around me. The Lord has saved me, and now I have this awareness of sin all around me. Do you know the chief place you'll be aware of sin if you've been born again? It will be the sin in you that you become aware of. It's the sin in you that grieves you more than anything else. And so when you find a person who constantly justifies himself, makes himself a victim, thinks that she deserves better, boasts of her own goodness, mourns of his mistreatment, you're talking about a man or a woman who is apparently very unaware of God's grace to them. If I know that God has saved me, then I know, along with the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the foremost. And that, in fact, is the foundation for helping other people out of their sin issues. My awareness of my own sinfulness, which means now with a humble heart and a grateful heart of one who has been redeemed, I plead with another person as I would want them to plead with me. Don't be destroyed by your sin. This is what produces humility and gentleness as we confront sin, the knowledge of our own sinfulness. And this is what is to to characterize elders. This is what is to characterize true shepherds. The desire for people's rescue, yes, but also the gentleness that should be present as we confront it. 2 Timothy 2.23 says, have nothing to do. Paul exhorting Timothy as a man of God. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That is, people mistreating you. And then it says this, correcting his opponent's With gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What a picture this is, that you patiently endure mistreatment of yourself and you gently confront your opponents with correction, with truth, and the goal of it all is, Lord, may you grant them repentance that leads them to a knowledge of the truth and an escape from the snare of Satan. Now I ask you, when you confront sin, is that what's present in you? A long-suffering attitude that, that can absorb wrong done to you? 
and at the same time, a gentle approach to the one who would do wrong to you, and the desire to be an instrument of God to help them see the truth, come to their senses, escape from the snare of Satan. You won't have that attitude unless you know you're a forgiven one. God has had mercy upon you. You're a great sinner whom the Lord has forgiven. You were ensnared. You were blind. You weren't in your right mind. And the Lord had mercy upon you. We read it this morning, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the discipline of sin is a salvation matter. It, it reveals salvation or the lack of salvation. The last principle, the last element is this. The discipline of sin is a supernatural matter. It is a supernatural matter. Because we find this language that we've heard earlier in Matthew. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Where did we hear that before? Where Jesus entrusted to Peter, Peter just representing all the disciples, Jesus entrusted to Peter the keys of the kingdom, which speaks of the authority of God's people to pronounce what God has pronounced, to apply the standard that God has already revealed. We have no authority to declare what God hasn't declared, to make a pronouncement that doesn't have the authority of God's revelation standing behind it. But where God has spoken, He has given to His people the authority to announce what He announces. So that that which has been bound in heaven can be bound on earth, and that which has been loosed in heaven can be loosed on earth. We're simply applying God's standard in God's name because God has revealed the standard. So that when we're submitted to the truth of God in confronting sin, we're bringing the Word of God to bear upon a person's sin. We're doing it not just in truth, but in spirit. Our heart conforms to the process that Jesus sets forth as we carry out God's will in God's name by God's Spirit with God's power. Jesus is there. That's what he's saying in verses 19 and 20. Two of you agree on earth about anything. This is right on the heels of two or three witnesses. It shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Our Lord is telling us, when you follow these steps in the way that I've given them to you, you may doubt from time to time whether you're doing the right thing. But if you're doing what I've told you to do, I want you to know I'm right there with you. This is how the shepherd is loving his sheep. This is how the shepherd is protecting his sheep through the instrumentation of his people. As we love each other in agreement with, submission to, these words, our Lord is at work, you see. By the way, that's one of the most misused passages of Scripture in all the Bible, isn't it? It's not about a prayer meeting where nobody showed up. It's about discipline. It's about confronting sin. Can I ask you, when one of God's people confronts your sin, 
Are you hearing the voice of your shepherd? I wonder how many people have resisted correction because all they can see with their eyes and all they can hear with their ears is the human instrument. And they don't have the faith in that moment to recognize, no, the shepherd of my soul is making use of this person to help me if I'm just willing to listen. We're talking about the keys of the kingdom. We read it early in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul says, I'm there with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus. This is something supernatural that the Lord has given to His church. And if you reach that point due to sinful stubbornness where you would be put out of the fellowship of the Lord's church, you need to know that is no light matter. Listen again to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul reflects the design of this correction, the goal of this correction, the hopes of this correction, when he envisions someone suffering temporally in order to be saved eternally. And the realm to which they are introduced is dangerous, the realm of Satan. He mentions this again in 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's opponents, no doubt, associated with the church. And now Paul has led in the discipline of these men they're outside the fellowship of the church. They've been turned over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is a supernatural matter. So as I finish, in light of those nine principles, those nine elements, let me very quickly offer five implications, five things that stand out as a result when we think about these nine things. First of all, no one who belongs to the church has a right to go on in sin. No one who belongs to the church has a right to go on in sin. This is really the issue, isn't it? It's not that God's people sin. We all sin. But what do you see repeated throughout these verses? Verse 15, if he listens to you. Verse 16, if he does not listen to you. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them. You see, it's about hearing, isn't it? It's not, do we still sin? We all sin. The question is, if our sin has become characteristic of us and it's destructive and someone then comes to us with love and concern and says, here's what I see, are we listening? Will we listen? No one has a right to say, I just won't listen. Because then it goes to the next step. Because you see, we can't refuse to love you. You profess to be a brother or a sister. We're going to treat you like a brother or sister. We can't refuse to love you. Will you listen? 
Second implication, that means no one who belongs to the church has a right to say that his sin is no one else's business. Is there somebody hearing me tonight that this is what you've been saying? It's just nobody else's business. Our sin is the church's business. We don't live lives isolated from one another. We live lives in fellowship with each other. No one who belongs to the church has a right to say that his or her sin is no one else's business. Third, no one who belongs to the church has a right to be the final judge as to whether he's sinning. This is a very common thing as well. Well, I just don't agree. I just don't agree that that's sin. Do you notice, if you went all the way through this process without repenting, what it would mean is you don't agree that what you're doing is sin. The person comes to you one-on-one. Either you agree and you won't repent, but in many cases what happens is someone just denies, I'm not sinning. So then you go with two or three and they say, I'm not sinning. Then you tell it to the church and they say, I'm not sinning. Dear ones, listen, you and I, in this process, we are not the final judge as to whether or not we're sinning. Someone brings the Word of God to us and confronts our sin with Scripture, whether it be sins in the realm of attitude or thought or words or behaviors. We're not the judge. The church has the authority to judge. We don't judge outsiders, but we do judge those within the church. Fourth, isn't it clear the correction of God's children is to be a loving matter and conducted in a way that reflects that? Any kind of process that's harsh, unwilling to to really listen to the person and really discover what's going on, any process that is unduly swift, not giving time and space for repentance and correction is a denial of these verses, not obedience to these verses. So is there humility, gentleness, patience, love on display in the way that we correct each other? Remembering First Peter that love covers a multitude of sins. We talked about this morning. Again, you won't understand tonight if you don't listen to this morning because we really emphasize what Scripture emphasizes about being patient with each other and absorbing things, not quick to be offended, not quick to exhaust each other and exasperate each other with every possible violation of God's Word, but rather when something is destructive in nature that has to be corrected. And so is love on display in the way that we do this? Last point, I've mentioned it, but I want to say it again. The final observation, implication, the correction of God's children is ultimately the work of their father and their shepherd. And the church is merely the instrumentation that God uses. May the Lord grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear that wherever one believer sees an issue so serious, so concerning, that they finally must speak to it, finally must confront it, finally must address it. May the Lord grant us the humility and the faith that we could stop in that moment and not see the human messenger, but our God who is at work through the human messenger for our good. And that can take place in a Christian friendship. That can take place in a family. Brother, your wife comes to you concerned about something in your life. Can you see in your marriage 
with a fellow believer, how the Lord works through her to help you? You just hearing her? Or are you hearing your shepherd through her? Dear wife, can you recognize when your husband comes to you with a godly, genuine concern? It's not just him. The Lord is at work through him to help you? Can you hear your shepherd through the human instrument? This is what God calls us to recognize. So may our God be glorified in the community of His people as we submit to His Word, walk in accordance with it, unleash the keys of the kingdom, recognize we're involved with something beyond what we can see, where the Lord Jesus walks with us and the power of God is being exerted in a way that lives are transformed and preserved and rescued from sin. And in that way, please our shepherd and love each other, genuinely caring about the spiritual good, not just of our own life, but of every other child of God. May God be given glory in His church as we submit to His Word. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You that You love us enough to place us in a community of saints with knowledge of the truth and knowledge of each other where we are known by others and are called to know others and where relationships serve to exhort us all the more as we see the day coming where the Spirit of God is at work in and through the people of God for the mutual, loving edification of the people who belong to you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful at every point of what we've talked about today. Faithful to believe you, faithful to practice what we read, but also faithful to embrace the heart of it so that we practice it rightly. May we see that this is not something just institutionally formal. It's family life that we recognize we really are brethren. And what you've set forth is just family love, that we help each other along the way until we see our Savior face to face, our shepherd who's at work even through his sheep. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.